Well, you know, the last couple of weeks we have been, uh, uh, we were in Proverbs chapter 22 and 23, and we were talking about the landmarks, the ancient landmark and the old landmark. And um, I, I, I sat down this last Monday and, and, and just thought some things through, and I thought, you know, it would be totally incomplete if I didn't finish this up the way it should be finished. Now, I know that today is Easter, and that uh, you're all here with your Easter bonnets on, and uh, you uh, probably have the Easter money waiting for you at home or something like that. But uh, you know, our we don't we don't put a lot of emphasis on 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 Easter, and fortunately, this is I never preach an Easter message. This is going to kind of be an Easter message. I guess it just depends on your perspective on it, but. Uh, <coughs> Uh, we believe we thank God for the resurrection every day of our lives. Amen. I don't. I don't have a lot. Uh, don't have a lot to think about Christianity that just wants to designate one day about something in the Bible. Um, I, you know, I know we set aside Christmas for the birth of Christ. I thank God every day that God was manifested in the flesh. Amen. You know, it's one of the mysteries in the Bible, and the Bible says that we're to be stewards of the mystery. So. I don't. I, I think too many of God's people get hung up on just putting Christ out of their life 360, uh, four days a year, and then picking one day to do it. Is that right? I did that right. Okay. And um, is is that June or July? You're having that meeting again. Now let me ask you. And 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 I think if a child of God needs to thank God for the things of God every day. And I know what Christianity has become. I understand. And I know how most Christians are. They get to the point where they, they just they like the idea of being traditionalized. That we just set one day aside to think about Christ and one day aside to think about His resurrection. And then we put it out of our minds the rest of the day. You know how I know that? Because churches today will be filled with people. And next week they won't be there. See what I mean? Now, as I said, the last couple, of, so this is going to be kind of an Easter message. You can take it or leave it however you want to. Uh, I look at it as my, the best Easter message you're going to get probably, so take it for that. But we looked at two of the most important verses for Christians uh, throughout the whole Bible. Uh, if you want to get to the point in your life as a child of God where the Bible says that we should look to get a full reward, if you want that full reward, and as Paul says, if you want to run the race and finish the course, then these two verses we've been talking about in the message today will, will probably really help you. You know, a lady one time talked to me, and she was having some issues in life and trying to get her to come to church, and she said, you know what, I'm just trying to find myself. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I'm telling you, you if you want to really find yourself, this is the place to find yourself. You won't find yourself at home. You won't find yourself out wallowing in your problems. If you want to find out who you really are and what you're dealing with, here's the place to find out who you are. And, I, and, I, and you know, and if today will be a great time if you're looking for yourself. You know, I asked a lady, guy, a lady said to me one time, well, you know, I just don't feel myself. And I said, well, how do you feel when you feel like yourself? She didn't even know. We get so confused with our feelings and our emotions. And people are always saying, well, I'm on a journey to find myself. Hey, I'm going to end your journey this morning. <laughs> We're going to put closure to it, if you really want closure to it. We examine two great landmarks, haven't we? First of all, in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 28, we looked at the ancient landmark. The Bible talks about there, that is the nation of Israel. 
Then we looked at Proverbs chapter 23, verse 10, the next chapter over, and it talks about the old landmark. And we, we understood now that uh, the whole Bible and the whole history of the human race and the whole history of the world is, can be viewed and should be put into context and perspective around two landmarks. One in the Old Testament, because that's where God's focus was in the Old Testament, and then the church in the New Testament, and that's where God's focus is in, in the New Testament. And I went through each one and showed you how that these two landmarks will keep us as Christians, as a church, you know, uh, out of the apostasy that has literally swallowed up Christianity today. And uh, last week I showed you the seven periods or the seven stages of church history. I showed you how that in the Old Testament, God broke the Old Testament down into seven or eight sections, made it easy to figure it out around the landmark. Last week, I showed you how that he did that in the New Testament to make it easy again around seven periods of church history, and we went through those. Now, we're on the record now, and I wanted to do this last week. I wanted to have an official statement, even though Caleb has done a wonderful job on the website of putting up our statement of faith and what we believe. I didn't even know we believed all those things he put on there, but <laughs> since it looks so good, I believe it now, Caleb, I believe it now. But anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 we, I, I went on the record last week, and I showed you through what we had taught why this church is a Baptist church. And why where everybody else that are used to be Baptists are taking Baptists off their name and the reason they do it, we will never take it off of our name. And now you know why. And it wasn't because I like the name Baptist or it wasn't like that my mama was a Baptist or my grandma was a Baptist. It was the fact that we now know why the Baptist name is so absolutely from the Bible and history vitally important. And I get it. I get it. There's idiot Baptists out there just like there's idiot everything out there. I understand that. That does not take away from the fact of who we are and what we believe and what we stand for. Now today, I want to show you how we use what I gave you the last couple of weeks. And if you came here this morning, I want, let me apologize before I, I go any farther. If you came here this morning expecting an Easter message, uh, I apologize for that. And uh, I, I hope that you'll enjoy what I'm going to do, uh, but uh, and I, I, I sincerely uh, apologize if you were coming in and, and you wanted me to talk about, uh, you know, Easter and resurrection and how Christ came out of the tomb and saw a shadow and back in and it was six more months of the tribulation period. <laughs> that's, that's not going to happen today. Giving you the material I gave you the last couple of weeks and then not giving you an example of how it works will really do you no good. My job is not only to teach you the truth. That is my main function uh, in this church, is to teach you the truth. But that's not my only job. My, only, my job is not only to teach you the truth, but my job is to show you how to use the truth that I have given you. And that's what I want to do today. So this will be the final message. This will put it together, and, and uh, we'll go from there. You know, years ago, before most of you were born, uh, I was taught these two verses, and when I saw them for what they really were, uh, it changed everything about me. <laughs> you might say I found myself. And, 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 and everything I looked at, I looked at God, I looked at the Bible, I looked at church, I looked at history, and I looked at myself totally different. And now I had a context. I had a perspective. 
I could look at everything out there uh, in life that God was doing, and I can now build it around two landmarks that put everything in a context for me. Suddenly, God's three plans found in the Bible made sense to me. And I've told you this. Yesterday in Bible Institute, we came through these three plans. It just happened to be that. That's where we were. But God has a plan for the universe over there in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. There's a reason why He made all those galaxies out there. And there's a reason for earth, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18. God formed the earth to be inhabited because God has a plan for it. And yet God has a plan for you. And they're all separate, but they're connected because God has a plan for you. You live on the earth, and the earth is in the universe. So when you understand how that works, uh, it's been, it's been a, it, it'll really help you put it all together. And uh, I, 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 I completely understood then what God was doing. And today, I want to show you how to use those two verses. I want to I use it to figure out one of the most confusing things that most people deal with when it comes to Christianity in general. And, uh, you know, yet it's made very easy. It looks like it's complicated. I've probably been asked this question uh, more times than any other question. But when you, when you look at it on its face value, it looks very complex. But when you, this is the example, when you use the landmarks, and I'm going to show you how to do it, it becomes really simple. And as I said, I'm probably asked this question more than any other. Uh, what about all the different churches? They say, uh, the national average, that there's 20 million churches in the world. 20 million churches. And I'm asked all the time, how come there's so many different churches? How come there's so many denominations? How come there's so many different people who believe different things, different faiths? Why are there so many? And, and how do you wade through them to find really the truth? I mean, you got the Roman Catholic Church. You got the Presbyterian Church. You got the Lutheran Church. You got the Episcopalian Church. You got the Greek Orthodox. You got the Russian Orthodox. You got the Charismatic Churches, the Pentecostal Churches. You got the Church of God. You got the Church of Christ. And then you get into the Jehovah Witnesses. You get into the morons. You get into the Christian Science. You get into the Churches of Christ, the Unity, the Seventh-day Disadvantages. You got all of those crews out there. And you look at all of that, and it looks like it can be confusing. I mean, you're scratching your head and, you know, you can't even go out to the mailbox and somebody's knocking on your door trying to get you to go to their church. And uh, if the average Christian, I mean, they, they're, they're probably comfortable staying where they're at because they've been in there for many, many years. But if they were honest, they would look at, I mean, you can't drive down the street. You got one over here, one over here, one, and they're all different. How do we and that great complexity of that sea of churches wade our way through that? The answer is landmarks. Landmarks. Now, for us as Bible believers, you know, we will find that the majority of God's people get caught up in this. And the majority of God's people think that they're all okay. That, you know what, I, I've had people tell me, you know what, just like there's lots of road to go to St. Louis, there's lots of road to get to God. And these churches are just on different roads. Now, that may be true of going to St. Louis, but it ain't true of getting to God. God doesn't live in St. Louis, so it doesn't work that way. Now, you know, 
Proverbs 14.12 says, and we've got to consider everything. Proverbs 14.12 says, there is a way. There is a way that seemeth right unto man. There's a way that seems right. There's a way when you say, ah, that's what I'm going to believe. That's right. There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And you've got to be careful with things in this world. That's why God gave us the Bible. That's why God gave us the instructions in the Bible. That's why God gave us everything that we need that as we wade our way through life. And boy, life can be a wading process. You have a way to figure it all out. And, uh, you know, uh, you, you'll find that the, that the church of Jesus Christ that the Bible talks about uh, will be manifested when you use the two verses I gave you last week, the landmarks. Now, for us as Bible believers, for us who will stay and learn and learn how to use those landmarks today, uh, this is how we will stay on the right track. You as a Christian will stay on the right track. And if you don't, we looked at it the last couple of weeks, we enter into the fields of the fatherless. And I've told you that the fields of the fatherless are going through history as an orphan, not knowing where you come from, not know the roots. Most of God's people go to churches, but they don't know what they believe, and if they do believe anything, you press them on it, they couldn't tell you why they believe what they believe. And that's a bad state of affairs to be in. Now, we're going to have some fun today. I'm going to pretend I'm you. And I'm, I'm you, and uh, I'm looking to figure all this out. And last week, I got some great truth. Last week, I heard one of the greatest preachers I've ever heard in my life. And I got the truth now. I'm you. I got the truth now of what I need, and now I'm going to put it to work. And I want to walk you through and show you how that you do that. Now, along with all the information I gave in the last couple of weeks, allow me to give you three more important verses that will be invaluable as you search for the truth to try to find yourself. First off, Psalms 127.1. This is a good one. It says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. The second one is in Mark chapter 7, verse 7, when it says, Howbeit in vain do they worship me. This is God speaking now. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrine the commandments of men. Now there's somebody that has taken the doctrines of the Bible out and then replaced it with what man wants to say. Got to remember that. And I want you to mark in your mind mentally, because we're going to use this phrase, Today, I want you to mark in your mind the commandments of men. In verse 13 of Mark chapter 7, it says this. When they do this, it says, Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, while ye have delivered, and many such like things do ye. So what he's saying here is that the difference between, uh, the difference, uh, if, if God didn't build it, then man built it. And if man built it, then man building something makes the Word of God of none effect. That's what he's saying. Because the Word of God tells us everything that we're to believe. It tells us everything that we're to operate by. It gives me the insight into everything that's out there. And when I cease to follow the Word of God and I start to follow a man, the commandments of man, or somebody teaching outside the Bible, then what it does in their lives, in your life and in my life, simply makes the Word of God of none effect. In other words, the Bible doesn't mean anything anymore. And unfortunately, in Christianity, that's where we're at today. The average Christian says, oh, I love the Bible. My answer to that is, how many times have you read it through last year? 
Oh, I know. Why, as somebody said one time, if all the, if all the dust was knocked off of the closed Bibles in Kansas City, there'd be a dust storm to smuggle the crops. Nobody reads it anymore. Nobody, we talk about it, we give it lip service, but the reality comes back that we really don't spend any time with it. And when you look at any church, any denomination, including this one, or any group of Christians, you always want to look for three things. Three things. Number one, who built it? Man or God? That's the first thing you look for. The second thing you ask yourself, and what are the doctrines that they teach or that they believe or that they hold to? Are there Bible doctrines, or is there something that a man made up, or can you actually find them in the Bible, and there they are? And then the third thing is, it does it line up with the landmarks? Now, if you follow those three things with what I gave you last week, you're going to be okay. Now, I want to walk you through these, and I want to show you. I'm not attacking anybody. I, I could care less. I, please, if you're one of these churches that I'm going to talk about this morning, I, I, this is not an attack on you. This is a, not an attack on your church. I, 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 I could care less. I support you, whatever you want to do. I, one time, one guy was going to commit suicide, he was going to jump off a 20-story building, and I use modern psychology. I support your decision. He said, you do? I said, I do. He says, well, that ain't right. And I said, I, I know it isn't right, but you're going to jump. He said, no, I'm not. And so he got down and he didn't jump. <laughs> well, I grabbed him and threw him over the thing and he fell. <laughs> so if you're in one of these churches, please, don't be offended. I, I'm not picking on anybody. I am the nicest guy you will ever meet. Amen. I am. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But... I want to walk you through these. I want to show you. I want to show you how you use what I gave you last week. Or it isn't any good for you. Now, let's take the Catholic Church. We'll start there. I'll take that first because Rome has been the second greatest focal point of all history. There's no question about that. The main focal point in history, obviously, the nation of Israel and the Jews, Jerusalem. But the second greatest focal point all down through history has been Rome. Uh, when you go back in Daniel chapter 2, when he lays out Daniel's image there, uh, he shows you the Gentile nations that are going to come into being. Babylon is in power, then Persia defeats Babylon, and then Greek, uh, Greece uh, defeats Persia, and then Rome defeats uh, the Greeks, and then uh, about 100, 200 B.C., and then from that point on, Rome is never out of power. Rome runs as a nation up through uh, around 300, 400, and then Rome never goes out of power. That's why in Daniel 2, the legs are Rome, but the feet are also Rome, and they just go right down. There's no end to the Roman Empire, and I'll show you that here uh, in just a moment. Rome is in power at the first coming of Christ. Uh, she had by that time conquered all of the known world. Tremendous power, tremendous nation. But the Neville knew that she would not be able to survive as a nation forever. So around 400 A.D., what happened was the devil pulled off one of the greatest tricks and defeats of all history. He changed through the Emperor Constantine, which is around 300 A.D., 325, uh, somewhere in there. He takes the Emperor Constantine, who history gives the, uh, gives the credit for uh, putting an end to the pagan Roman Empire and starting uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you can go to any library in Kansas City and find that information. 
we, we, uh, we don't even sell that information in a bookstore. I purposely keep it out so you can't believe we're just doing that. Go to the public library and read it for yourself. He changed pagan Rome into papal Rome. He, he took, and instead of having a nation now called Roman Rome, he changed that nation into a religion. Now it's called the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he starts around 400. I gave you the information last week. Today, the Roman Catholic Church is a world power. She's more than just a religion. Uh, she is her own country. We have ambassadors from our country to all the other nations out there, and we actually have an ambassador to the Vatican because it's not only a religion, it's now a nation in that sense. And, of course, they claim their uh, church goes back to Peter, Matthew chapter 16, where the Bible says that uh, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the Catholic Church takes that and says, see, that's where the Catholic Church started. It started with Peter. Well, Peter was never in Rome. There's no evidence that Peter was ever in Rome. And the Lord wasn't saying, Peter, I'm going to make you the rock. What he was saying, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, and if you read the context, the rock is Christ that he just confessed to in the other two verses. Well, let's don't bring the Bible into it. And you'll find that I told you about the books of Avril Manhattan, probably the greatest authority on the Roman Catholic Church in the 19th and the 20th century. Written, wrote tremendous material. And so when you look at the, when you look at the uh, Roman Catholic Church, we'll start with that, you find that it was started with a man, Constantine. The Catholic Church is built on five absolute pillars. You take any one of these away, you don't have a Catholic Church. The first one is the Mass. The second one is the Eucharist. That's the wafer that they, they take, uh, uh, make it into the body of Christ. The third one is the sacraments. Uh, the fourth one is the Catholic Church itself. The word Catholic means universal. And then, of course, the uh, fifth one is the priesthood, and that is a select group of men uh, who are over everybody in the church. And, of course, um, the Catholic Church is built on these five. Now, because the Catholic Church started with Constantine, who's a man, and you find nobody before Constantine believing anything that they believe, these five things that they built it on, cannot be found in the Bible. You can't find a Mass in the Bible. You can't find the word Eucharist in the Bible. You can't find the word Sacraments in the Bible. You can't find the word Catholic in the Bible. And you can't find a priesthood that matches up to that priesthood. So they're the landmark. Helped us understand where we're all at. Now, the second church group I want to talk about is the Greek and, and Russian Orthodox. What are their landmarks? Well, now both of these come from the Roman Catholic Church. And you'll find that in 1054, there was a split with the Roman Catholic Church. And it goes back to uh, Pope Leo III, who back in 800 A.D., in fact, it was on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., he crowned Charlemagne, Charles the Gross in history, I call him Big Chuck, he crowned Charlemagne King of the Franks. That ticked off all the European Catholics because they didn't like Charlemagne, and so it broiled for a while, as all things do, and about 150, two years later, a group of European Catholics split from the Catholic Church, and they formed, again, a split, and they formed what we know today as the Greek and the Russian Orthodox. So where does, where does their landmark, where do they come from? They come from the Roman Catholic Church, which comes from Charlemagne, or excuse me, uh, uh, Constantine. The landmark for them is the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the next group of churches are called 
Anglican Church, Church of England, and Episcopalian. Now, this without a doubt is my favorite. Now, Anglican Church, Church of England, Episcopal Church are all the same group. They're called different names by different places. Over in England, it's the Church of England. Duh. In England, it's the Church of England. In America, it's called the Episcopalian Church. And for those who can't say Episcopalian, it's called the Anglican Church. That's basically how it works. This is my all-time favorite. Of all the churches I'm going to walk through, this is my best one, and I love this one. You know why? Because this shows you how stupid people really are. Now, I don't usually need the word stupid, but my little plaque back there says, life is tough. Tougher when you're stupid. That's right. This one shows how ridiculously people don't pay attention. And maybe they're not stupid, they just don't pay attention. But that can't be right, because when I didn't pay attention, my mom said, pay attention, Bobby, you're so stupid. So I guess they are go together, but anyway. In 1500, 1500 years after Christ, in 1500, England was a satellite of the Roman Catholic Church. Henry VIII was on the throne. And uh, back then, and maybe this will help you understand a little bit about history, back then the nations, especially the ones in Europe, if they wanted to form alliances and not go to war, they would have the daughter of one king or the son of one king marry a son or a daughter of another nation's king. That was kind of like make them all part of the family. And they would think twice about going to war because you're married to my daughter. Uh, your daughter married my son. And, and, uh, and in this case, Henry VIII had married Catherine of Spain. And her father, Ferdinand, remember Ferdinand and Isabel, the ones that sent out Christopher Columbus? Well, Ferdinand and Isabel, uh, he was the king of Spain. His daughter Catherine had been betrothed to Henry VIII, who's now the king of England. Well, Henry VIII was a character. And he fell out of love. He fell out of love with Catherine of Spain. And he, he found a hot chick in Europe by the name of Anne Boleyn. And Henry VIII fell in love with her. He wanted to divorce Catherine to marry Anne. Things don't change much in time, do they? He wanted to get a divorce from Catherine of Spain and marry Anne. But back in 1500, the only people who could grant a divorce was the Pope. And so Henry calls the Pope on the Pope hotline and he says, look, Pope, I need your help. I, 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 I married to Catherine of Spain, but I don't love her. She didn't do it for me. I don't love her anymore. And I have met the love of my life, Anne Bullen. And I'm telling you, this gal is something else. And I want to divorce Catherine. I want to marry Anne. And I know, I know, you're the only one who can give a divorce, and I'm asking you. We're buddies. You've scratched my back, I've scratched yours, we've done a lot of things together. I need your help. Give me a degree of divorce, we're good. Ferdinand said, Henry, I can't do that. Right now, Spain is in the middle of the Inquisition. And she's killing a lot of these Bible believers for me. 
And I don't want to tick Ferdinand off because if, if I, uh, you're married to his daughter, he's doing a lot of good things for me. And if I give you a decree and a divorce so you can dump his daughter to marry Anne, well, you can see the position that puts me in. Henry says, you don't understand true love. Because you priests can't marry. You don't understand. When a man loves a woman, he loves a woman. And I love Anne, and I don't love Catherine. And I need a divorce. And he says, Henry, I'm sorry. You know, Henry VIII, Hen- oh, Henry, they made a candy bar after him after a while. He, he, says, he says, I can't do that. I just can't do that. Well, Henry slammed down the phone. So he's at dinner that night, moping around, won't eat. You know how it was when you fell in love for the first time? Or you're shaking your head. Yeah, you do know, don't you? Huh? You know, you're, you're just, your face falls in your food. You're just not hungry. Your, your mom and your dad or your friend says, what's the matter? Oh, nothing. You're in love. Love's in the air. You're in love. You're in love. And this was Henry VIII. And he was just moping around, you know. Usually he was full of fire. He's just moping around the palace. Thomas Cronwall was his prime minister. And Thomas Cronwell come in and he says, what aileth thee, king? And he took him into his confidence and he said, Well, I, I don't love Catherine of Spain and I love Anne Bowen. And Thomas said, Yeah, she's hot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if he said that or not, but give a little spice to the sermon this morning. It's Easter! So anyway, he says, What? What do you mean? The Pope won't give you your divorce? He said, no, he won't. He says, my king, you're the king of England. You're going to let some pepperoni pizza Pope tell you what you cannot do? You are the king of England. Henry said, I am. I'm Henry VIII. I am, I am. That's where it comes from. (laughs) He says, I am. I'm the king of England. So he says, get that Pope guy on the phone. So Henry gets it. And he says, hey, Pope, this is Henry. I want you to know something. I don't care if you give me a divorce. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to, we're not going to be Catholic anymore. We are going to pull out of the Catholic Church. England is no longer going to be Catholic. And we're going we're gonna to be our own church. Pope says, you can't do that. He says, I'm the king of England. I can do whatever I want. You watch me. Pope says, what are you going to call it? Hey, Tom, what are we going to call this church? <laughs> he thought real quick and he said, how about the Church of England? Going to be the Church of England. <laughs> now that's how... The pes- if, that, if, if you're in a Church of England, a Episcopalian, or you're in England, that's how your church got started. It got started because the King of England wanted to divorce his wife to marry somebody else, and the Pope wouldn't do it, so he quit the Catholic Church, started his own church, and gave himself a degree. Now, what's your landmark? Judge Judy. <laughs> you see you see what I'm talking about? How stupid is that? <laughs> My church goes back to the Waldensians and the martyrs and the Huguenots who would not, who would not, who got bathed in the blood of their sacrifices. Yours goes back to a guy who wanted to leave his wife for somebody else. 
Not the church I want to belong to. What is wrong with people? <laughs> See how the landmarks work for you? Makes it easy. Then we have the Protestant church. Now, I need to explain the word Protestant. Everybody thinks that if you're a Baptist, they're part of the Protestants. That's not true. The word Protestant means protester. The Protestant church came into being out of the Reformation of the 1500s. Baptists were already there. We were Anna Pedro Baptist at that point in time, or Anabaptist. And, uh, but we're not Protestant. I'm not a Protestant. I'm a Bible believer. And uh, you have the Lutheran church. That's a Protestant church. When the Reformation took place and, and uh, the Catholic church was being ripped apart and people were fed up with it, uh, a guy by the name of Martin Luther left the Catholic church and he started his own church called the Lutheran church. So what is the landmark for the Lutheran church? Martin Luther. 1520. It's not Acts. It's not the apostles. It's a man by the name of Martin Luther. You have the Presbyterian church. And the Presbyterian church uh, uh, came out of the Swift Reformation. It's landmarks. Follow the landmarks. And the Reformation not only affected Germany, it affected all of Europe. And in Switzerland and in France, you had two men who were fed up with the Catholic Church. They started what is called the Presbyterian Church. One of them is John Calvin. The other one is John Knox. John Knox is buried out here in Lee Summit at John Knox Village. He's not. But that was named after him. That's him. That's the guy. And from them come the Presbyterian Church. Because they protested the Roman Catholic Church. They left the Roman Catholic Church. And now they've all went back to the Roman Catholic Church. Then you had the Methodist Church. Around 1700, uh, it starts with a guy by the name of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. And they, uh, they, they say, where are their roots? They were both pastors in the Church of England. See how it works? They got fed up with the Church of England. They left the Church of England. And they started what is known today as the Methodist Church. Now let me give you a little sideline here. I love things like this. The Wesley came to America to preach. And they flopped. You know why they flopped? Because they weren't saved. They'd come out of an Anglican church, the Church of England, which taught baptism for salvation. The Lutheran church always taught baptism for salvation. The Presbyterian church teaches baptism for salvation. And the Methodist church does today. Where do they get that from? Rome. All roads lead to Rome when you follow the landmarks. So you got Wesley coming over to America when some great things were happening in America. And he flopped and he's going back to England. And he's in great despair. And he's laying, he's over there looking over the rail of the ship with the wave going up and down. And he's thinking to himself, what a failure I've been and what a wasted trip this was. And in 1738, going back to England, he met a guy by the name of Peter Bolin. Peter Bolin was a Moravian missionary. The Moravian missionaries come from the Waldensians, right on the line where you and I come from. And he starts talking to Wesley, and he starts talking, and Wesley talks to him and confides to him how he's messed up and how it isn't working. And that old Moravian missionary, who nobody knows his name, won Wesley to Christ on that boat. Right on the line. 
Right on the line. He couldn't find the salvation in the Church of England. He couldn't find the Roman Catholic Church. He couldn't find it in the Lutheran Church. He couldn't find it in the Presbyterian Church. He couldn't find it in the Methodist Church. He had to find it from our line, a Moravian. I love the little side notes like that. Now, then we have the American cults. Uh, they will be the cults that pop up in America from 1700 to 1900. And there's a science to this that I want you to understand here. All history goes through four stages. If you look at history, you want to look at it in the light, and you'll find all history is in one of these four stages. It's just the way it is. It starts out with a man. It goes to a movement. It moves to a machine and it winds up a monument. Everything in this world started with a man. That man brought about a movement. As long as history starts with a man and stays with a movement, it's good. It's when it moves into the slick machine where everything has to be fast-tracked, where everything is orchestrated and made to happen, that it dies and turns into a monument. I'll give you some examples. You take the Salvation Army. Salvation Army, at a start with William Booth, was one of the greatest organizations for winning people to Christ that you ever saw in your life. It truly earned the name the Salvation Army because they preached the salvation of Jesus Christ through the blood of Christ and won thousands and thousands to Christ. What happened was after the old man's death, things started to move along. They left the movement, went into a machine, and now today it's a monument. It's a social organization today. There's no salvation preached. Why, if, if William Booth come back from the dead and walked through the first Salvation Army church, he'd have a heart attack before he got past the first ashtray. Totally gone. There's no salvation. They don't even talk about God or the Bible. It's a social organization. That's where it went. You take the Lutheran church. It started with a man, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a saved man. He was a Roman Catholic priest, and he read in the Bible, uh, but the just shall uh, live by faith, and he got saved. And so he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. He not only started the Lutheran Church, but he knew that the Catholic Bible was no good, so he translated off the text that your King James Bible comes from, Martin Luther's German translation. And he was doing good. But after his death, went from a man to a movement, then it went into a machine, and today it's a monument. Today, they're all going back to the Roman Catholic Church. Take America. This country was founded on the Word of God. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence and he brought it back to the first draft, they said, there's not enough references to God here. We as a nation can never forget what God has done for us and send it back and he had to put it in four times. You know what happened to America? Started with the Bible. Went to a movement, Christianity. Went into a machine, all the political stuff, and today it's a monument. You know what we've done? We've done exactly what our founding fathers told Thomas Jefferson we could never do. We forgot what God has done for us. You know why? We're a monument. All history goes that way. I say that to say this. When God founded America and had the pilgrims come over in their Plymouth, when, at Plymouth, when, when God founded America, God began a movement in America that was going to last for the next couple hundred years. And there's a great principle you want to learn about God and you and this country or any country. 
if God does not keep injecting himself into a nation, if God does not keep injecting himself into an individual, that individual will move past the man in the movement where he should stay and become a mime. You know, that's what happened to churches today. Churches today have gotten so big, they've gotten so shiny, they've gotten so sparkly. Uh, they started, they were good churches at one time. They started with a man who believed the Bible and, and had a movement, but then it moved into a machine. It went into all of the fancy stuff. It wasn't enough to come a place and just have a place where you preach the Word of God. We had to dress the place up so you would feel more comfortable because you're very sophisticated people. That was what we wanted to build everything in the world has into the church so you would feel like this is really a neat place. It's the concept that it's bigger is better. So it's a thing where we, we bring in, a, we bring in, a, we bring in a, a, a restaurant and we bring in a, a Starbucks and we bring in this. And we put in a gymnasium. We have a fitness center. We have all these things. And, 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 and all the things that people come, they say, wow, look at this church. It's got everything. It's got everything but the Bible. Because you have all that and done all that when a guy gets up to preach on Sunday morning. Hey, don't tell me. You have complained to me about this, most of you. He gets in a pulpit. He spends 15 minutes on a lame Bible and 45 minutes on we need money. Amen. And then Sunday night, we need more money. At the Wednesday night service, this is going to be the son of money. <laughs> so, God through the next 200 years across America, going east from west, which is the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible, gives us what we call in history seven great awakenings. Seven times that the Holy Spirit of God injected himself into this country. And let me just say this to you. If God does not inject himself into any country, then that country is going to go downhill. And I want to say this to you as a child of God. If God doesn't continually inject himself into you, you're in trouble. And he injects it in you on Sunday morning and Thursday night or whatever night you have at wherever church you go to. That's your injection point. That's where the guy gets up and puts out the Word of God and you get injected by the Holy Spirit of God or the Word of God. That's why when people have problems, the first thing they do is miss their injections. Quit going to church. Quit coming here. Quit going there. I know, you're going to find yourself. Yeah, you drop the needle of God, you're giving you his injection, you pick up a needle of something else and get that injection. I know how it works. But the bottom line is, if God doesn't keep injecting himself in a country or us, we're in trouble. So, very quickly, across America, for the next 200 years, you have seven great awakenings. And you can Google this on, on the web. First of all, in 1740, we start to see the, the adversity once this country got established. We start to see the Church of England starting to come in. God sent a great awakening under Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. In the 1800s, in the New York and Pennsylvania Valley, we began to see another great revival because, uh, I'm going to show you in a minute, uh, apostasy began to set in. In 1830, we had the Cumberland Gap Revival down in Cumberland, Maryland, and all that area. And uh, again, apostasy had set in. I'm going to show you in a minute. In 1860, during the Civil War, a revival broke out with the Southern troops in the South, and apostasy showed up again. Uh, in the 1880s, in the Ohio Valley, in Illinois, D.L. Moody preached and really made an impact and God used him as a great uh, awakening for this country. In the sixth great awakening, about 19, uh, 1900 to 1920, it was Billy Sunday in the Midwest. Billy Sunday rocked this country. And God, through him, gave a great awakening. 
And then the last one was in the 1940s on up to, uh, I'd say, maybe the 60s or the 70s before it went into a machine and monument. You had the ministry of Billy Graham. And Billy Graham finishes it off, and he, uh, he does a tremendous job in the early years, and God used him in those early years before his associations went into the machine and the monument to really uh, impact uh, this country. Now, follow the landmarks. As God's Holy Spirit moved across America to keep uh, them in the Word of God and to keep them there where they need to be, the devil raised up seven counterfeit churches. Now, we talked about the European churches. Now, we're going to talk about the American churches. We're going to talk about the American cults. And I want you to see, going through our thing, the commandments of men. We're going to look at the landmarks. And these were all prevalent, and you all have to deal with them, or you all know somebody that's associated with it. And all we're doing is just going with the landmarks. If you want to find out the truth, just stay with the landmarks. Find out where it is. Find out if it's the Word of God or the commandments of men. Now, as God's Holy Spirit moved across America to keep uh, America in the book, the devil raised up seven counterfeit churches that have absolutely no landmarks. Uh, let's look at them. Let's go through them just a moment here. Uh, what happened in the 1740s and the 1800s in New England, when the first Great Awakening came, the devil raised up what we know as the Mormon church. The Mormon church, sometimes called the RLDS. The Mormon church starts around 1800, 1820, somewhere in there, and uh, it starts with a man, Joseph Smith. A little bit later on, they split, and Brigham Young takes a group, and uh, uh, that, uh, that religion, that group, that church right there, started with a man. There was nobody in the history of the world that believed anything that a Mormon believed before Joseph Smith found it. He's a young guy out there, and he finds some angel. That angel gives him some golden plates, uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, then he gets the Book of Mormons from that, and voila, we have now the Mormon church. That's the way it works. And uh, if I didn't know the Mormon church was not right and was out of whack by any other way, I know because he believed that the second coming of Christ is coming to Independence, Missouri. If Christ is coming to independence, I'm out. <laughs> uh, honest, this is the not truth. Years ago, they built that big thing over there, that big tower up there, and I, it got a big light on it, and I asked the guy, I said, man, what are you? He said, this is where the Lord's coming back. I said, why the tower and the light? He says, that's so the Lord can find it when he comes back. <laughs> now, I, I'm going to tell you something. My Bible says that my, my, my Lord knows the, the hairs on your head. And in some of your cases, it takes less to count than others. <laughs> My Bible says that not a sparrow falls to the ground and he doesn't know it. But we've got to help him with a light on a tower so he can find where he's supposed to come back. I'll be an Episcopalian if I have a choice in the thing. Landmark, a man, Joseph Smith. Goes back to him, 1820. A man. All right, the Second Great Awakening in New York and Pennsylvania. And we find uh, another cult group pop up, an American cult as we call them. And this will be in the 1820s, the 1830s. This will be the Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, this group starts with a guy by the name of William Miller and a woman by the name of Ellen White. And it was the, he was a Baptist minister, got ticked off at the Baptist church and said, I'll start my own church. We had to call him Henry VIII. And, and he broke free and he started what is known today as the Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist means the coming of Christ, the Advent, second coming. In fact, he said that Christ was returned on October 22, 1844. 
and he gave that date as when Christ would come. All of his followers sold everything that they had. They went on this little pasture mountain someplace in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, I forget where it was, and they all waited patiently for the Lord to come back. Never came. Never came. And the fact that the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18 for 18 from 22, that that's how you know if a prophet is of the Lord or not, nobody paid any attention to the Bible. Uh, they hold that Saturday is the day that uh, they meet, so uh, uh, they don't meet on Sunday. And it doesn't matter that the Bible says that in the New Testament they met the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And of course, uh, nobody on the planet Earth before these guys believed anything that they believed. Their landmark, a man. Their teaching from the Bible, absolutely not. Their teaching from, from the man, the commandments of men. Then the third one, in the Cumberland Gap Revival took place in around 1820-1830, uh, pops up the Christian Science Movement. And this will be by Mary Baker Eddy. She writes a book a little later on called Science and Health. And this is our first interesting church because this is a, this is a metaphysical church. This is one that says that everything that's wrong with you is in your mind. And of course, uh, uh, they say that all sickness or all illnesses uh, are, uh, are an illusion. And that they, uh, they, she said that in her book. And they, they have the, you know, they go to the Christian Science Reading Room and they have them all over the place. And it's all a spiritual thing. Landmark, a woman, 1820. Nobody ever believed anything that they believed before she shows up. 1860, the Civil War, the Great Revival in the South. The counterfeit church that pops up is the Church of Christ. These are American cults. These are American cults. These are cults that pop in America that are absolutely, ridiculously stupid. And it only plays on the people who get in them because they're dumber than the people who put it together. Because all you have to do is have the landmarks and see, why would you join a church that was nowhere in history before the middle of the 1800s and think that it was the true church? We're going to get there in a minute. Church of Christ. The Church of Christ started by Alexander Campbell. A little bit later on after he dies, a guy by the name of Barton Stone. It starts in Kentucky, right where the revival takes place. And uh, 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 Alexander Campbell was associated with the Baptist church, and then he got ticked off, and he pulled a Henry VIII and, and uh, started his own church. No landmarks. The landmark goes back to two men. Nothing in the Bible, two men. Then the fifth one, 1880, the Ohio Valley Great Awakening. And, of course, this was under the preaching of D.L. Moody. And at this point in time, uh, about 1860, we find the Jehovah Witnesses popping up. The Jehovah Witnesses pop up with Charles Russell, and then after he dies, about 1916, uh, Judge Rutherford takes it. And, of course, they don't believe that Jesus Christ was God. They believe in salvation for uh, uh, baptism for salvation. They don't believe anything. Uh, they believe they're going through the tribulation right now. They believe that Christ is not coming back. They, that's where they're at. Landmark, roots, a man. A man, two men in particular. Then the sixth one in 19, 1920, when Billy Sunday is preaching the fire out of the country, we found in 1889, uh, Unity popped up, who has, their, who has their headquarters out here in Lee Summit. And uh, uh, that uh, was started by Charles Foley or Fuller and enemy, uh, uh, Emily Caddy. And uh, again... Uh, it's a thing where during also this time we saw around the turn of the century neo-evangelism and neo-orthodoxy came in. Neo-evangelism was set up to take the Bible out of your hand and put it back in education. Neo-orthodoxy is the teaching that we as Christians evolve with the world. 
we accept the world. We don't have a standard. We have an evolving Bible that keeps getting better. If now society says that this, this is okay when the Bible says it's wrong, if society accepts it, we change the Bible and the message to fit to it. That's where that one goes. And of course, uh, you know, uh, that's how that one goes. The seventh one in 1940 started with Billy Graham on the West Coast. And along with that, devil countered what we all know and love as the charismatic movement, which starts around 1900, develops itself in the 20s up to the full Christian Businessmen Association or the full Gospel Businessmen Association in the 1940s, and uh, voila. It starts in California in about 1920 at the Azula Street Mission. It starts also about the same time in, in Topeka, Kansas at the Bethel uh, Bible Church. And the founder of the charismatic movement is Amy McPherson, a woman. A while back, when we talked about this, it's been a while back, uh, uh, one of the guys that was in our church, he's no longer here, he moved back home out in uh, uh, Craig. Uh, he, had, he, has, he bought me a, a, uh, a 1942 uh, page of newspaper on the death of Amy McPherson. And it went through her whole life history and talked about all the lawsuits she had against her, how she left her husband and ran off with a piano player. What a way to start your church. Now, those are the main ones. Now, here's how you spot them, along with the landmarks. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 17, verse 5, that mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. I told you, all roads are going to lead to Rome. All false teachings, all false religions will have their roots back to the Roman Empire, either pagan or papal. Remember that you don't look at a church itself or what it's called or uh, you, you look at what they believe. You look at what they teach. Every one of those American cults will bear the marks of the characteristics of the Roman Catholic Church because fundamentally they all come from them. Let me show you what I mean. Seven ways that they, they don't look like it and at face value they don't, but when you look at it and you see it and you study it, they all have the same traits. Number one. They all believe and teach that there's only uh, that their church is the only true church. Roman Catholic Church teaches that. Every one of the American cults teaches that. A Jehovah Witness will tell you there's salvation, no salvation outside. Yeah, here's church. So we're a Church of Christ. So we're a Mormon. The second thing, they all teach baptism for salvation, just like the Roman Catholic Church do. The third thing is they all uh, they all uh, have to replace the Word of God with something else to keep it going. Roman Catholic Church does the Apocrypha. Mormons do the Book of Mormon. Jehovah Witnesses do the New World Translation. Everybody does that. Because if you took the Bible and tried to propagate that church, it'd fall on its face. Because the Bible won't support it. So, hey, if, you gotta write another, if we have to write another Bible to support what we believe, we're in trouble. We'll just take the one God wrote and we'll find ourselves there. They all believe that salvation is only with their church. And they all claim that they take the place of the Jews, that God has done with the nation of Israel, and they now have become the new Jews. Every one of them will not match up to any of the landmarks found anywhere in the Bible, and every one of them, number seven, will start with a man. And every one of them will have an absence of 1,800 years in history. But nobody pays attention to history anymore. Now, I know that whether you're a Roman Catholic and you believe in baptism for salvation or you're a Jehovah Witness and you believe in baptism for salvation, I know the end result for both people is the lake of fire. I get that. You cannot get to heaven by being baptized, no matter what you are. But I got to tell you, 
You look at the American cult that I just listed, the seven of them, their history only goes back 200 years and starts with a man. You look at the Roman Catholic, at least it goes back 1,500 years. I don't know what it's like when a man dies and goes to hell. I know it's a terrible tragedy, and I'm not making light of it in any way, but I want to make my point here. You know, if you're a Roman Catholic and you died and went to hell, you at least could maintain some respectability. You were in a church that was around for 1,500 years. I mean, you're still in hell. I get it. But at least you can say, well, I, I, my church was around for 1,500 years. It really fooled me. Somebody could say, yeah, I got that. I can't imagine a guy going into hell as a Jehovah Witness. I mean, it'd be like go, going to hell in a Cadillac versus going to hell in a VW bus with the engine stolen. <laughs> They've got to push you over. How anybody could believe anything that only goes back 100, 200 years. And then you have a gap of 1,800 years that nobody on the planet, nobody, nobody in history could ever, ever believed anything. And suddenly a man shows up in 1820, 1830, 1840, and he says, I got the truth. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. Out in dealing with the American cults, Christians always make a fatal mistake. They always do. Uh, most Christians have no understanding of their own roots, let alone the other root to deal with them. And uh, it, it, it always doesn't work well. And, uh, you know, and now what I'm about to tell you here is a secret weapon. I'd like to shut this off so it doesn't get on the Internet, but don't leave it on there. Because a lot of good people listening to it. By the way, if you're listening to it because you don't want to go to church someplace, I wish we could shut you off, but that's beside the point. <laughs> oh, you'll have people like that that won't come to church anywhere, and they'll sit and listen to that, and I, that offends me. That offends me. Some morning I may just get up on a Sunday morning and just give you old earphones and speak to you and just put on a Jimmy Swagger tape or something, you know, they can listen to it. <laughs> now, what I'm about to give you is a secret weapon. This is my secret weapon, where Eric von Braum developed the atom bomb. I developed this. <laughs> Mine is more destructive than his. All the American cults are trained to deal with you in the Bible. They have classes on it. That's why they, when they go door to door and you see them walking down the street, they have been trained. They don't put them out on the street till they have been trained. They know who we are as Baptists. They know what we believe. They go through elaborate classes, all of them, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Church of Christ, all of them go through enormous classes being taught what the Baptists believe so that when you come up against these Baptists, you can defeat them. They've been trained to deal with us, to know the verses that you're going to say to them before they say it. They know what they're going to believe and they're going to say, and they know what you're going to say back, and they've already got their answer, and you fall right into the trap. You know, when you're in a war, in combat, and you have a very hard objective that you've got to take, a frontal assault is never a good idea. You never attack your enemy on his strong front. You look for him to look where he least expects you. You find a weak spot, a place that he lets undefended, 
and then you will put up a false attack to the front. That's called a diversion. And then you will sneak around and come into the weak spot, and you will kill him. Now, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse, we're in a warfare. And, you know, you're going to find that most Christians today are not warriors, they're whiners. They whine about everything. But it's a shame with the American cults. When they come to your door or you confront them, I know, you got your list of verses here and you're so happy because you're going to whack them. You're not going to whack anybody. They're going to whack you. And you're going to come up to them and the Jehovah Witness is going to knock on your door and you're going to say, well, there is a hell. And he's going to say, uh, with a Greek word for hell is Sheol. There's no word in hell. And you're going to say, um, yeah, but there is a hell. And he's going to say, yeah, but it's not found in the Bible. That's a mistranslation. In my Bible, it, and you're going to say, yeah, but you're not going to know what you're talking about. Because he knows where you're going to go before you even go there. And he's got you covered. So this frontal assault is like standing up in front of nine German pillboxes and saying, shoot me. Now, i got to say this. When it comes to the Catholics, the Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and the Anglicans and the Lutherans, this really doesn't apply. They're an exception to this rule that I'm about to give you because they don't know nothing about the Bible. Uh, in fact, the Catholic Church tells their people not to read the Bible. They'll, they'll tell you what the Bible says. And the reason they do that because the Catholic priest knows that if you get into the Bible like Martin Luther did and you read the Bible, you will get saved. Somebody said one time the greatest book against the Catholic Church wasn't written by a man, it was written by God. It's the Bible. Because you can't find anything in there to believe. That's how Martin Luther got saved. So you were going to deal with those groups. They, they're not, they don't know anything about what they believe. Most Catholics don't even know what they believe. Most Lutherans don't even know. I'm a Lutheran because my mama was a Lutheran. I'm an Episcopalian because this. I'm an Anglican because I can't say Episcopalian. It, it, it just goes that way. But when it comes to the American cults, you got your hands full. Now, let me give you the weapon. Listen to me very carefully. All fake counterfeit churches, cults, the American cults, fundamentally lack one thing. They lack one thing. Because they're latecomers, middle 1800s, have no roots, have no landmarks, and they're not real, and they're phony and they're counterfeit, they desire more than anything else credibility. They want you to recognize them as legit contender. When you foolishly go up against them with a Bible and debate them verse by verse, then they come away with a sense of credibility. They think because you opened up your Bible as a Baptist and debated them in the Bible that they are now on an equal level with you and you have just given them the number one thing that they desire and want, and that is legitimacy and credibility. You have to deny them that. You have to hit them where they're not expecting you to hit them. You have to strip them of their credibility. You have to make them look stupid. Now, I know, I know. I can see it now. I can hear it now. Boy, Bob just doesn't have the, the love of Christ. Yeah, I do have the love of Christ. I do. I honestly do. But you failed to read your Bible over there in, in 1 Kings chapter 18 when Elijah went up against the Jehovah Witnesses of the Old Testament. Did you see what he did? He said, let's have a test. You build your honor, I'll build my honor. 
And you know what? Let's find out whose God is God. You call, you call your God down to bring fire on the altar. I'll call my God down to bring fire on my altar. And we'll just settle this. Let's find out who's God. You say you're the true church. You say God is your God. I say he's mine. Let's cut the debate. Let's just find out who's who. So you go first. So all these prophets of Baal, they get their altar up there and they start crying to their God for fire. Oh, send this fire. Give us fire. Give us the baptism of the fire. Give us the fire. Give us everything. Bring the fire down. And they're dancing around over there and Elijah just standing there watching them. Saying, have a little trouble, guys, are you? <laughs> Rough time, isn't it? Um, but then the Bible says they got serious. You know what they, start? they started cutting themselves. They started emaciating themselves, cutting themselves, trying to get their God to appease them. And they're going, and they're going all day long. And they're waiting at, at high noon when you have the Roman Catholic high mass. They're, they're going nuts. They're cutting themselves. They're praying. They're jumping. And old Elijah, he's over there, and he's, he, he's saying, hmm, what would happen to your God? Maybe he's sleeping. What, a, what an unchristian thing to say. Maybe he's on a far journey. Now, I don't like the new translations at all. But one time in one verse in the Living Bible that I love, when it's in 1 Samuel 18, 18, where they kind of re-put it into a modern, and where I just said in my King James Bible, it says, I wonder if he's on a great journey and he can't hear you. I wonder if he's asleep. In the Living Bible, it says, maybe he's sitting on a toilet. Yeah. That's what it says in the Living Bible. Yeah. Don't look at me like that. Go get one. Read it. I didn't write it. He, he ridicules them. And then you know what he does? He does the most ultimate ridicule possible. When they can't get theirs done, he says, all right, boys, my turn for my God. And he says, bring us some water. And he dumps the sacrifice, dumps all of it with water. Bring another bucket. He dumps the water on it again and again and again. He saturates it with water. Then he, that, so it would be hard for anybody to light a fire. Then he stands back and he says, okay, God, show them who's God. And that fire comes down. It burns up the sacrifice. It burns up the wood. And it burns up the stones. You know why? Because God's sacrifice is always a complete sacrifice. And the Jehovah Witnesses... The Baal worships, their God never showed up. So that's how you got to deal with them. So when I say, uh, when I say what I just said about you got you to strip them of their, of their, uh, of their credibility, you got to make them look like a fool, that's the only way you can reach them. Elijah knew that. And you do that by slamming them down through history, the fact that there's no landmarks. Let me give you an example of this. Here it is. I'm you. Jehovah's Witnesses are talking to me. Mormons are talking to me. Church of Christ. And they're telling me they're the only true church. Here's what I would say. Oh, I see. You're the only true church. Really? I I'll tell you what. I know you're out here trying to find converts. You answer me one question. And I'll quit being a Baptist. I'll go with you right now. I'll go back to your kingdom hall. I'll go back to your temple or wherever you want to go. I'll renounce everything. You can baptize me as a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon. I'll go through the whole nine yards because all I want is the truth. 
All you have to do for me to do that is just to answer one question. Where was your church in 1400? Where was your church in 1500? Where was your church in 1600? I'll tell you what. Let's play a game. I'll give you 50 names of guys who believed what I believe down through history. I'll give you 50 for every one of yours. I'll give you Martin Luther. I'll give you Savonarola. I'll give you Paterturnius. I'll give you Jonathan Edwards. I'll give you George Whitfield. I'll give you John Clark. I'll give you, I'll give you Roger Williams. I'll give you John Hush. I'll give you uh, uh, John Christensen. I'll give you uh, Peter Cartwright. I'll give you Minnow Simons. On and on and on you go. 50 of them. I just gave you 50. All I want from you is one. Just one. I don't need five. I don't need four. For every guy you gave me who believed what you believe in 1400, 1500, and 1600, I just want one. You're telling me you're the only true church. You're telling me that salvation is only through you. I want salvation, but I want to know you're the true truth. Where were you in history? Now, what he'll try to do to you, what they always try to do, he'll try to pull you off subject. He'll say, well, what do you think about hell? And I say, you idiot, I think you're going to go to hell if you don't get saved. But put that aside right now. Tell me, don't pull me off. I am not speaking to you about the Bible till you show me your roots and your credibility that you have some history. Otherwise, you're just a cheap imitation two-cent cult. Put it to him. He'll say, well, what about Acts 2.38? I'll say, what about 1400, 1500, and 1600? Well, what about Luke chapter 16 and Mark chapter 16? What do you think about that? I said, I think you're nowhere in history, and you know it, and you're scared to death, and you can't prove anything, so you're trying to pull me off. So let's forget the Bible right now. I want to be whatever the truth is, and if that's you, I'm in. You just got to answer one question. Well, you've been answering questions of stupid Baptist all morning. Why can't you answer this stupid Baptist just one question? Where were you in 1500? When Martin Luther and the Holy Spirit of God was shaking the world through the Reformation in Europe, where were you? In the great Philadelphian church age when three quarters of the world were saving knowledge of Jesus Christ based on what I believe in the Bible I have, where were you? Come on. How stupid are you? How stupid? Do I have stupid written across my forehead? You're trying to tell me you're the only true church and for eight hundred years, the world was without any salvation, any truth, because your church didn't exist. It wasn't until your guy showed up and decided to make up his own church, and everybody from, everybody from the book of Acts up to 18, 20, or 30, or 40 died and went to hell because there was no truth. And then what? In 1820, with your guy, God finally said, let's send the world salvation. I mean, give me a break. There wasn't one person on planet Earth that believed one of those things. There wasn't a Jehovah Witness before Russell and Rutherford up to 1860 believed anything on Earth that you believe. There wasn't any place in history before Joseph Smith in 1820. Anybody on planet Earth and the world believed what the Mormons believe. The Church of Christ crowd, there was nobody. I mean, in no nation and no country and no crack or no crevice of the known world that believed anything until Alexander Campbell, your man, decided to make it true.
Not one person on planet Earth thought. Not one person on planet Earth believed. Not one person on planet Earth had a church that had anything to do with the seven-day disadvantages before William Miller and Mary White showed up in the 1830s. Nowhere. Nowhere. And I'll tell you what. We'll make it even more interesting. I'll give you $10 million in cash. You only have to report it to the IRS. $10 million if you show me one church one pastor, one man who believed what you believe before 1800. I've actually said that many times. One of them scoffed and said, oh, come on now. You couldn't get that much money. I said, you know what, bugwit? I could get the money together before you could find a guy. Because he ain't in history. Nowhere. Nowhere. Happy Easter. Nowhere. There was never a unity church anywhere in the universe before 1889 with Charles Fillmore and Emily Academy. Nowhere. There wasn't one charismatic Pentecostal church of God, tongue-spealing, tent revival, healing person anywhere on planet Earth when the great missionaries through the Philadelphian church age went out to Africa and India and all of the places where the gospel went. 95% of the missionaries were medical doctors. I used to watch Jimmy Swaggart there, the stupid people sending in millions and millions of dollars. And he was talking about God healing, God perfect healing. And I'd watch him up there and he'd say, God will heal you. Send for the prayer cloth. God will heal you. And I want to read you a scripture. And then he put his glasses on. <laughs> well, if God could heal you and you got bad eyes, what do you need glasses if he heals? And there's stupid people out there sending, write a check, honey, write a check, let's get it to him. Oh, I want one of those prayer claws. Oral Roberts. He put himself in a tower one time and said, I'm not coming down and I'll die up here in this tower unless the people out there send me $10 million because I want to reach the world with the gospel. He wasn't in that tower a week. Shoot, he'd still be in there. It was up to me. I'd have locked the door, welded the hinges shut in, and never got out. <clears throat> he said, I need $10 million. He said, I have come to God, and God has told me to lock yourself in this tower, <clears throat> and I will not come out until God touches your heart. And God's people just write a check, honey. Write a check. Oh, write a big check. Oh, that ain't big enough. Write a bigger one. We can't let him die. One of the greatest healers on the planet. <clears throat> One, uh, he had <clears throat> things where you had a disease, they healed you. And people looked at that and believed that. And you know what? Oral Roberts University was a medical university. It trained doctors, not faith healers. Hey, I've, I've seen those guys. I've said, hey, can you heal? Absolutely. Good. Let's go to Children's Mercy. What are you doing in here in this sawdust tent? Why, you're just getting nickels and dimes for these people that don't have any money. You want some big bucks, bozo? Come with me. You know what a mom and dad down at Children's Mercy will pay if you heal their little kid of cancer? 
Well, they'll give you everything you want. What are you doing wasting your time here when you can walk through those halls? You'd have your picture on every newspaper. You'd be on, you'd be on Ofer Rimfrey. You'd be everywhere. <coughs> I mean, you would have the greatest if you just, 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 but they won't. It's always in a tent. It's always with something when they get done, then you rush them off. You know why? Because it isn't true. Landmarks. 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 Catherine Kuhlman was one of the greatest faith healers back in the 60s and the 70s. She died as she was one of the greatest faith healers. You have to hear her on the radio. And she sounded, oh boy. And you know what? When she had a heart attack, they wasted no time getting her to a hospital. There wasn't one charismatic anywhere in the history of the universe before 1900. And just for the record, there wasn't one neo-evangelical or neo-orthodox either until 1890 to 1910 was brought into existence by the Jesuits of the Roman Catholic Church, but that's another message. And they exist today because God's people were orphans. They don't know. They don't have any landmarks to trust anything. They themselves don't know what they believe. Why would they know what anybody else believes? Now, the reason is no landmarks. You don't have the ability to separate the real from the phony, so you just get confused with it all. What I did today is show you how to take the landmarks and use it clearly to find out if it's the Word of God or the Word of God is made effect by the commandments of men. And you can't argue with it. See how easy that was? I've had people say, well, I just don't get it. All the churches out there, it's so confusing. It's not confusing. It's only confusing because you're trying to wade through it without a flashlight. This is what I call a working knowledge of the Scriptures. And I don't care what it is in your life, what the subject is. It can be history. It can be a church. It can be your own personal life. It can be your marriage. It can be your family, whatever. The key will always be finding the landmark principles of the Bible that will simplify the process. And whatever your issue is in life, it will make it workable and make it understandable and make it fixable. The Bible is the truth of God's Word. And with it uh, will be the guide to everything in life that you and I want. And that's why the number one goal of the devil, and here's another thing, the number one goal of the devil is to take the Word of God from you. The number one goal of God's church is to get the Bible to you. It's just that simple. Happy Easter. They will tell you, well, you don't have a final authority. I'll tell you, yes, you do. They will tell you, well, the Bible's full of mistakes. I will tell you, no, it isn't. They will tell you, well, you've got to have the Greek and the Hebrew. I will tell you, no, you don't. Well, they'll tell you, well, the Bible contains uh, the Word of God. Uh, uh, but I will tell you, the Bible is the Word of God. They'll tell you that God is the God, you find God through education. I'll tell you, you find God by being dumber than a stump. You always mark the devil's crowd, saved or lost, by just one thing. They want to destroy your faith in a book and take it from you. You always can tell God's true church by one thing. You get the Bible, you keep the Bible, and the Bible becomes the most precious thing in your life. They cannot stand you having an absolute perfect Bible that you don't have to get your information from them. Let me tell you something. I may teach you the Bible and bring you along, but I expect every one of you a time in your life when you will stand on your own. 
Now, you won't need to read anybody's books. You won't need to read anybody's, hear anybody's sermons, though there's nothing wrong with it. You'll be able to figure it out for yourself, stand on your own, and that Bible becomes your personal guidebook through everything in life, whether it be history, whether it be your life, whether it be your family, whether it be your kids, whether it be your marriage, no matter what, it'll get you through. And the whole Christian world stands to try to take it from you. And there's churches out there that are on the line with the landmarks that weren't made, started by a man, but started by God's man, Paul, in Acts chapter 11, where they're first called Christians in Antioch. They want to give it to you. You have to decide which one you're going to put yourself in. You're either going to put yourself under the influence, the ones that want to take it from you and tell you you can't trust it, or you want to put yourself under the influence of somebody that says it's the only thing in this world and it's the only thing you can trust. So there's your Easter message. A good fitting to the last two weeks. And I showed you how that the landmarks work, how you use them. You just use them. You look at that thing and you find out, are, are they on the line of the landmarks? Find out if God started it, except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain and build it, or man build it. And that's where you go. Well, we'll head up, up there. We'll hold up there. Listen, there is no 